Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Luke chapter 24, verse 10. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The resurrection of Jesus isn't a matter of belief. It's a matter of fact. It's a matter for belief, but it's not a matter of belief. Whether or not it happened is not contingent on whether or not you or anybody else believes it or disbelieves it. It just is the case that Jesus of Nazareth, about 1989 years ago, was raised from the dead. It's something that kind of pains me when I hear Christians say, well, you know, they'll express some aspect of the gospel, some part of their Christian belief, and they'll say, well, but, but that's just what I believe. It's like, no, it's not just what you believe. It's like we don't talk about matters of fact in history, uh, other matters of fact, with that spirit at all. No one says, yes, yes, um, George Washington and, and, um, won the Battle of Yorktown, but, but that's just what I believe. Right? It's like, no, it doesn't matter. Why would you say just what you believe? Like, he won the Battle of Yorktown. That's the case. I actually had to ask Lincoln about that battle because I didn't know about it. <laughs> it's an Im- my American history is an embarrassment to myself. Um, but I make the point because I wanted to reference a public claim that is publicly acknowledged to have happened. The resurrection of Jesus is such a claim. It really happened. We establish it by the same way you'd establish any claim from the, from the past, right? The credible testimony of eyewitnesses the continuous transmission of that testimony and the absence of evidence to the contrary. And with all three of those things, the resurrection of Jesus is established. The, um, it's certainly a wild news story, right? Because the great sort of prompt for disbelief is, well, but people don't come back from the dead. It's like, right, of course they don't. That's why this is such an amazing news story. But just because it's unprecedented and unsucceeded yet until he raises us from the grave doesn't mean it's not true. It's still a true fact claim. And actually, this is why Luke, the evangelist, as a historian, includes the names of those people who visited the empty tomb first. And we can kind of assemble this collage of testimonies from the four evangelists and the different witnesses that they spoke to or were themselves. Of course, John was himself the eyewitness, uh, one of the eyewitnesses of both the empty tomb and the risen Lord in the upper room. These eyewitnesses are given names because they were known in the early church. We have this wonderful little record from a bishop um, named Papias around the year 100. And it's sort of like his diary entries. And he's talking about how much he loves meeting people who met the apostles, right? Because he's two generations out at that point. But he'd meet people and he'd say, well, tell me something from, from their living witness. Right? The living memory was the most treasured prize of the church. And each of the people who witnessed the resurrection, they continued to worship Jesus, right? Their Christian life didn't stop at Pentecost. They continued to worship in local churches. That There were Christians somewhere who would have been praying together shoulder to shoulder with Joanna and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And they would have continued that living witness. And when, if they didn't, if someone in the congregation didn't know that Joanna sitting next to them had actually seen the empty tomb, when they would have read Luke's gospel, written probably around the year 62, when they would have read Luke's gospel, they could have said, what? Joanna, is this you? 
did you see the empty tomb? And she'd say yes, right? The living witness actually is what gets enshrined and treasured in the written gospel. And the two together are this guarantee of the testimony of those who saw Jesus risen from the dead. It's Matthew who records that on the way back from the tomb, the women encountered the risen Jesus. And then they encounter him again when they're with the 11 in the upper room. They saw the risen Lord. It's an extraordinary testimony. I think it reveals at one level how much God loves sinners who repent. That after he himself, right, in his soul had descended to the place of the dead on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, and by the power of the Spirit had raised up and joined with the body that was in the tomb and been raised from the dead, and that body got transformed. It became a new kind of body, an immortal body. Right? So at once, the same as our bodies, right? but different because these are going to die. But this body now will not die. It's a glorious body, to use Paul's language in Colossians. So when Jesus is raised from the dead and his body has this, these new qualities about it, right? he can appear and disappear at will. It's very strange. He's, you know, he's with the people on the road to Emmaus, and then he's gone. Right? We, and we're going to hear some of these successive resurrection appearances in upcoming Sundays. His body is human but, but different. The very first person that he chooses to show himself to, to show that the kingdom of God is now here, that death has really been conquered, is Mary Magdalene, right? Sort of famous for being a really rotten sinner, but who had repented. And I think it's the Lord's way of showing, look, it's okay, whatever you have come through this life with, repent. And he is overflowing with ready love for the sinner. I just love that he meets Mary Magdalene first. Um, it's also extraordinary, as many people have commented on, but it's worth remembering that um, women in the first century were not treated with the dignity that they should have had in many respects. And so they weren't often allowed to be legal witnesses in certain law courts. So it's this interesting detail that to the gospel writer, like, wow, Lord, very surprising that you showed to the, yourself to the women first. But again, as always in the gospel, the Lord not following sort of the hierarchies of the world, but going to the people that the world says, well, they're, they're not the most important people. And he says, no, no, they're the most important people to me. And he turns it all on its head. Luke records even this fact that the women are the first to testify to the resurrection. as just a historical fact. It's a thing that happened. So we have this credible testimony from eyewitnesses. We have it handed down in the early church by all those living witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 records there was over 500 of them. We have it handed down in the Gospel of Luke and continuously handed down through every generation of the church. And then sort of the most startling point of Easter Sunday, we have no evidence to the contrary. Right? The tomb is empty. And it shocked the women, it shocked the apostles, it shocked the Romans, it shocked the Jewish leaders. Where is his body? That's a question that needs to be answered. Given everything we know about how timid the disciples were, being scattered on the night of the crucifixion, the sort of heavy, sort of lockdown, totalitarian government state in Jerusalem, like over this sort of very loaded Passover, Given the testimony of the eyewitnesses, the actually most credible answer is his body was transformed into a glorious invisible body. Right? It's a wild claim, but it's what makes sense of the data that we know.
his body was transformed, which means Jesus is right now alive. That's why we sang in the hymn that he is the king right now reigning from above the sky. And I used to struggle with, well, you know, I took a lot of astronomy classes. I was like, well, above the sky, like, what's up? You know, there's our galaxy, there's our solar system and the galaxy and the cluster of galaxies and the supercluster. Like, where is he? And then I remembered that God isn't bound by the speed of light. He made light. <laughs> right? He could just step outside with the material universe in an instant. He reigns above and beyond all of the cosmos, the entire cosmos, superclusters and all. But he's right now reigning as king. So establishing his resurrection, as we should, that's just a matter of fact. The only contingent question then is, well, how do we live in response to that? Right? If he's really the king overall, well, if this really happened, we should listen to what he said. We should take every word that he said as the gospel truth, right? pun intended. <laughs> because anyone who can be come back from the dead and live an immortal existence and be the king over the universe is going to be teaching us things that are worth listening to. They're worth listening to in the first place when we first hear the gospel, and they're continually worth listening to as we live into the gospel as Christians. We should accept the gift that the king is offering. I think um, this uh, understanding Jesus is king, what's one of the accidental benefits of watching Masterpiece Theater is you can get some sense of sort of social hierarchy and like a king, what it would be like to be in the presence of a king. When a king offers you a gift, you don't say no. You say, oh, you're offering me forgiveness of sins and unending life? I didn't even know I needed that, but okay, great. I would love that. Baptize me. When the king gives commands, we should say, okay, you're the king. That's what I'll do. And that as Christians, I know most of the faces that I see this morning, you all profess Jesus as your Lord. Thanks be to God. We should continue to live our Christian life with that conscious knowledge, that aware, consciously aware that we are always in the presence of the king, that he's always watching us and reigning over us. And to think sort of by analogy, how would you carry yourself differently if you were in, invited into the court of, say, a Queen Elizabeth II or any monarch who you respect in history? In, in their presence, you would sort of make sure that you knew the rules and that you, you know, specifically with the Queen of England, you never turn your back and there's all these kind of codes of etiquette. Um, and of course, with our Lord, not just etiquette, but the moral fiber of our life. How are we living in the presence of the king? Right? When we speak, when Christians speak about holy fear, that's what they mean. Simply that conscious awareness that we're in God's presence right now. That when you go home today and every day, you, are continue, you continue to be in God's presence. Of course, the great message of the gospel is that Jesus is king. But by taking on human nature, he is also our brother. He's the firstborn, which is a brotherly relationship. So think about what if you were the brother? What if the king was your brother? You would still follow sort of the, the etiquette of the court. You would still live, you would carry yourself differently with the knowledge of his presence. But there'd be a sort of warmth to it because it's your brother. You grew up together. I mean, there would be a warmth and a, a, a familiarity that wouldn't mean that you didn't respect the king or that you didn't obey his commands. Of course, you, you would do all the more so to honor for the rest of the kingdom, how much you respect the king. There's an old um, 
English word, which we don't use very often, which captures these two ideas, sort of obedience and sort of following um, orders and a sort of brotherly love. And the word is fealty. Just like that word, fealty. It captures the spirit that we should live with as Christians in the knowledge of the presence of the Lord. We should have a fealty for him. Um, <clears throat> I had to look up how to spell it. It's F-E-A-L-T-Y. Fealty. A warm and obedient loyalty to Jesus as our king. Because he deserves to be, he has been crowned king objectively and he earned it, as it says in the New Testament. He earned it through his, his loving act of obedience to the Father. It's why we still have a crucifix up even on Easter Sunday. Because we remember that the risen king, this is what he went through and this is how he purchased for us the kingdom that we could get to be a part of. So even with all the fanfare of Easter, the cross always hangs. We remember that this is what the king paid to bring us in to his kingdom, us who were lost. All glory to him. Amen.